welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. What would happen if you wrote just 500 words a day for seven days? Well, in a week, you'd have written just under 4,000 words. And if you did this for a year, you'd have well more than you need to write and publish a book. What I'm describing is creating a daily writing habit. Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and one person who knows a lot about creating habits is James Clear, the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Atomic Habits. I recently read this book and found it really engaging and helpful for anybody who wants to create regular habits like writing. I also had the opportunity recently to catch up with James and I started by asking him, how can somebody use habits to write a book and what should they do if they're procrastinating? So I think there are two answers here. So the first one is just talking about how habits compound and kind of conceptualizing why that's important. And then the second one is like, what's the first step someone should take? So first, I like to refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. And the reason I like to use that phrase is that the same way that money can multiply through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them throughout time. So, you know, in a way, time magnifies the margin between success and failure. So if you have good habits, then time is suddenly your ally and you're accumulating these little improvements each day. And if you have bad habits, then time becomes your enemy. And uh, with each day that passes, you kind of put yourself a little deeper in a hole. And on any given day, it's kind of hard to understand the importance of that because it doesn't feel like very much in the moment. You know, like, what is the difference between eating a salad for lunch or eating a burger and fries? Not a whole lot on any given day. Your body looks basically the same in the mirror. The scale doesn't really change. You don't really notice any impact on that day. Same way for uh, working on a business. Like, what is the difference between making a sales call today or making three sales calls and not making one at all? Well, probably not very much. Like it's not going to put you out of business tomorrow if you don't do that today. But it's only after you've compounded those choices over two or five or 10 years that you look back and you realize, wow, my daily choices actually make a very significant difference. If I eat a burger and fries every day for lunch, I end up in a very different spot. If I make three sales calls a day every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, well, then all of a sudden the business is thriving. Whereas if I just procrastinate that on that and put it off, we may be out of business in two years. So it doesn't feel like much at the moment, but it ends up making a significant difference in the long run. And that's why I refer to habits as the compound interest of self-improvement. Because like any compound interest curve, in the very beginning, it's shallow and basically flat that you don't see any progress. All the returns are delayed. So that's the first reason, just conceptualizing why that's important. Then the second answer to your question is, well, what should someone do then? You know, okay, if you embrace this idea that 1% changes add up, that they compound over time, and that your daily habits and choices are actually really significant, what can you do? Well, the first thing to realize is that your current trajectory matters much more than your current position. So a lot of the time people either sabotage themselves or never get started because they start falling into this like lap or this loop of self-judgment where they're, you know, they feel bad about their current results. And then because they don't have the outcomes they want, they feel guilty or judge themselves and so on. Yeah. But your current position does not really matter if your current trajectory is positive. And so you're just trying to find some small margin, some little advantage that you can gain each day. 
And that's why if I'm going to recommend a place for someone to start, I like to recommend beginning with the two minute rule. And so the two minute rule simply says that you take whatever habit you're trying to build, whatever ambitious plan or goal that you have for yourself, and you scale it down to just the first two minutes. So read 50 books a year becomes read one page or build a six figure business becomes make one sales call or write one email. And if you scale it down to just something that you can do in two minutes or less, then you start to give yourself an opportunity to master the art of showing up. And this is one of the key insights about building better habits, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. A lot of the time we're so focused on finding the perfect business idea or the best weight loss program or the ideal you know, strength training template that we focus so much on this perfect outcome, we never figure out how to master the art of showing up. And if you want to have a successful business, for example, in order to give yourself the chance to be someone, to have a six-figure business or a million-dollar business or whatever it is you're looking to build, you have to first be the person who shows up and makes a sales call each day. And so by scaling it down to just the first two minutes, you make it easier to get started and you give yourself a chance to build that identity. And then once you're the type of person that does that each day, well, now you have a lot of options for improving and expanding from there. One idea that I was particularly fascinated by was the paperclip strategy whereby you move a paperclip across the desk each time you, you, know, you place that sales call. And I'm curious about what other types of tracking you recommend you know, an entrepreneur use or perhaps somebody who, who's you know, writing a book to grow their business. Yeah, that's a good question. So first I should say, I, I think that the, I like to broadly lump habits into two categories. So the first category are just habits that you don't really need to track or measure. And these are just kind of like basic fundamentals. And a lot of the time, many of the strategies I talk about in the book from environment design to temptation bundling, habit stacking, those strategies are good enough to get you to build a habit without needing to measure it. And I think that's also true for many business habits too. It's not just individual habits. But then there's a second category of habits. And those are like the few things, maybe like three to five at the most, I I would usually say like two or three, the really important habits that you do want to continuously improve and optimize. And so I think that's the first lesson for tracking habits is if you're going to pick habits to measure and track, keep it simple, keep it small, scale it down to just like two or three options. So for me, for example, for my business, I write articles and um, I consider my actual audience to be the email subscribers that I have. So the number of new email subscribers per day, that's a really crucial number for me to track and know what that's at. So that one's important. And for whatever your particular business is, maybe it's the number of sales calls you make, maybe it's the you know, number of customer support tickets you respond to, or the average time that it takes to respond to a customer support request. There are probably a few key metrics that are really crucial. So once you select those, then I think there are a couple strategies that can be effective for tracking. You mentioned the paperclip strategy. I think that's a good one. And it can be applied in a variety of ways. The thing that makes the paperclip strategy good, and just to to get people on the same page here, we're talking about you have two cups on your desk. And when one of them is empty and one of them has a bunch of paperclips in it, whatever the number of sales calls are you want to make. So say you want to make 25 a day. And then whenever you make a sales call, you move it over uh, and you just keep calling until you get all the paper clips across to the other bin. And the reason that's effective is because it's a visual form of measurement. You can't really lie to yourself about it. You can see it sitting there right in front of you. And so I've had readers who have used paper clips or marbles or hairpins or a variety of things. Like one person, whenever they wrote another page of their book, they moved a hairpin over. 
So any of those visual forms can work well. The simplest form is to get a calendar and then each time you do your habit, you perform your task, you just cross an X off on that day. And so what ends up happening is you get kind of these chains of X's going, like say you want to work out every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, when they have like chains going down Monday, Wednesday, Friday, all the way down the calendar. And uh, one of the mantras that's kind of nice to keep in mind with that is don't break the chain. It doesn't matter how good or how bad the workout is, doesn't matter how long or how short it is, just don't break the chain. Get yourself to show up again the next day. So those visual forms of measurement are good for that. The second strategy, though, is whenever possible, I like to automate the daily measurements so you don't have to track it day in and day out, but then schedule like monthly reviews. So there are all sorts of examples like this with my business. For example, Google Analytics automatically measures how much traffic I'm getting, what countries those people are coming from, how many email subscribers we have and what the conversion rate is. And then I just have a reminder on my calendar at the beginning of each month to check what their numbers were for the last month and compare them. So the process of measurement suddenly becomes much easier there because it's only something I have to do occasionally rather than every day. Uh, Those numbers can be very informative and helpful, but I only think you need to do manual tracking daily when you're building a habit in the very beginning for the first time. Once you kind of get it consistent, then you can move on to that sort of automated style. Yeah, and I suppose the key idea that I took from the book was how making those small changes can lead to remarkable results, uh, which I suppose you explained is where the, the meaning behind the title. I actually thought the title was, was a really great title for a nonfiction business book. And I was wondering if you, if you could talk a little bit about how you came up with that title or, or the process for picking Atomic Habits. Yeah, good question. So I chose the phrase Atomic Habits for three reasons. So the, the first meaning of the word atomic is small or tiny, like an atom. And that is one of the like, core philosophies of my approach is that habits should be small and easy to do. The second meaning of the word atomic is one that's overlooked a little bit more, not thought about as much, but I think is central and crucial. And that is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And in a sense, habits are kind of like the atoms of our lives. They're like these little routines and patterns that we do each day, these rituals, that when you put them all together they end up making the system of your daily routine. Third meaning of the word atomic is the source of immense energy or power. And I think that if you combine all three of those meanings, then you understand the narrative arc of the book, which is if you make changes that are small and easy to do, and you layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system, then you can end up with some really powerful or remarkable results. Did you go through many variations of your title before you decided on that one? Oh my gosh, I have a spreadsheet full of probably more than three or 400 different titles that I, I brainstormed. We went through so many iterations, it was, it was crazy. But we ended up settling on that one. That ended up being the, the best variant uh, that we could find. But there were, there were many that were considered. Yeah, it's, it's a great title. I also read your email recently where you described the process of writing Atomic Habits. And I was particularly drawn to your description of the mantra. Uh, I kept telling myself, you just need to suffer a little more. Then it will be great. <laughs> And I was wondering if you could you know, describe how that mantra helped you get through a difficult period while you were writing your book. Well, writing the book was very challenging for me. Part of that was self-induced. You know, I set out when I, I spent three years writing and researching the book itself. And another three years before that, kind of laying the groundwork, building the audience, writing about the topics weekly, developing a sense of expertise around habits and behavior change. So The book itself was three years from start to finish. The whole process was six years. And um, 
when I set out to write the book, I set out to write the definitive book on habits. I wanted it to be the most practical and actionable guide on how to change your habits and to be a really in-depth scientific discussion of how they work and how to understand human behavior. And that's about as big of a topic as you can pick, human behavior. And um, to, to lay that challenge down for my first book was very difficult. And so there were naturally many times throughout the process that I just felt alone or like it was struggling or this wasn't getting anywhere. At one point, my, my first complete full draft of the book was 214,000 words, which is about 750 pages. And the finished version of the book is under 250 for the actual text. Uh, and then it's a little longer if you include the end notes and citations and references and so on. So essentially, we cut it in one third of what I originally had. And, you know, so the amount of reading and writing and editing that went into that to make it really tight and potent and powerful and useful, it was just a very long road. And there were a lot of days in the middle of that where I felt like I was really struggling and and wasn't really sure if the project was even going to be worth it. And so as I was going through that and, and kind of suffering through that process, I came across this quote from the British philosopher Elaine de Botton. And uh, it's something to the effect of, of many books, a reader thinks this could have been truly great if only the author had been willing to suffer a little bit more. And I read that and I, th- I thought, man, that's like really where I'm at right now. You know, maybe this is just okay. But if I'm, if I'm just willing to suffer a little more, then it'll be great. And so I just kept telling myself that every day. Every day that it was hard, I was able to tell myself, like, this is how it's supposed to be. You just need to suffer a little more, and then it'll be great. And uh, eventually, after telling myself that enough times for, you know, three years or so, it was finished. And uh, I, I am proud of what we were able to complete and finish now. And I, I'm happy that I was able to write the book that I did. And when I read the book, I was struck by how meticulously it's researched like the, there's a wide range of citations from various different sources. How do you go into the research process for a book like Atomic Habits? Yeah, it's a tough question because I, so I like to refer to myself as idea agnostic. And what I mean by that is I don't care where a good idea comes from. I'm not limiting myself to psychology or neuroscience or biology or philosophy. Uh, any discipline is fair game for me. And what I care most about is, is the idea accurate uh, and is it useful? You know, like ultimately the best ideas have strong predictive power in life. That is that by understanding those ideas, you are at an advantage for the future because you better understand what is to come and how things will play out. And uh, my hope is that anybody who reads Atomic Habits, that they're at an advantage uh, for, for the remainder of the days going into the future for them. And another way to put that is that if you don't read the book, you will be at a disadvantage. And so in order to do that, I have to pull from a wide range of sources. But then there's a challenge, which is that it's impossible for any one person to be an expert in all those different fields. Uh, There are many, many people who are researchers and PhDs and scientists who spend their entire lives dedicated to one of those fields or a niche within one of those fields. So the only way that I've been able to work around that is by focusing on ideas that one are not represented by a single study, but by many. So they're uh, the scientific consensus rather than a single outlier. And two, there are a variety of people who I would consider like my sources or curators within a particular field. They stay on top of the research and the scientific consensus within their field. And then if I stay 
abreast of what they are doing, what they think is like on the leading edge, then I kind of get a good idea of the, you know, thousands of researchers beneath them or with, you know, around them. And so that curation strategy is really the only way that I, I know to deal with that problem of scale across many different knowledge domains. It's just not possible for one person to know everything at this point. And so um, those are the best strategies that I've come up with so far for, for handling that. And I understand you have a online course that helps people create habits. And you also publish articles regularly on your site. You strike me as somebody who will be quite busy running their business, but to set aside so much time for writing your book, but take up a lot of your day as well. My question is, how do you decide what to focus on now and maybe what to put off until tomorrow or next month or even next year? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I certainly don't think I have that handled. I'm, I'm trying to manage it and figure it out myself. It is a challenge. I, the, the short answer to what, I, what did I actually do when I was dealing with that is I basically put everything on autopilot and just wrote the book. I basically focus on one big project at, the, at a time. And so for the last year and a half, I just said, look, I'm just going to be writing the book. And so I didn't really publish many new articles at all. Occasionally, I would get one out, but most of the time, no. I didn't update the course that I have, uh, which we are updating it uh, next month, actually. Uh, and so we're working on that now. But that's a good example of it just had to wait until I, I did the book well enough and finished it. And I, I don't know that uh, there is any right answer for this. You know, like it's always going to be dependent on where your business is at and how much bandwidth and flexibility you have with your schedule. And then, of course, there will always be emergencies that pop up and take some of your time. But whenever possible, I do like the idea of asking yourself, what season am I in right now? And I think this works on a, a large level and on a small level. So I really like this idea that life is a series of seasons. And so, for example, from a high level, the current season that I'm in is relatively career focused. I don't have kids yet. And so, you know, I can spend more time focusing on the work I'm producing and the career I'm building and the business I'm building. And then at some point, you know, I will have children. And so then I'll transition to a less career focused timeline and I'll be, you know, spending more time with family. And that's a different season. But then even within that larger season of, hey, I'm focused on the career, I can ask myself in a smaller sense, what season am I in? Am I in a season where I'm like writing a book? Am I in the season where I'm working on the course? Am I in a season where I'm just writing you know, weekly articles and trying to improve and optimize the things that we have going right now? And I think by asking myself continually, what season am I in? It makes it easier for me to stay focused on one thing and not get distracted or divided to fracture my attention across like 10 different things. And um, again, you know, it's, it's going to vary for each business and it's challenging to figure out the right way to do that. But that's the, the question that has helped me handle that. Mm, yeah, I like that metaphor of seasons for your business and also for your life. Uh, one other thing I took away from the book is how you're moving away from setting goals, which are normally the staple of productivity advice and towards systems, such as what Scott Adams, the creative Dilbert recommended. So do you set any goals anymore or have you moved entirely to systems? Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. I don't think we have set any goals this year. I'm, I'm thinking back on it right now. We, maybe there was something, but I actually don't know that we have. We're much more focused on process now. You know, like there's, it's much more task oriented or small, like daily oriented whether it's what's in the task list in, a, in Asana, like what do we need to be getting done today, this week? 
And the goal is sort of like just a larger kind of uh, murky idea that's out there in the distance, but it, it provides like a beacon for us to move toward it. It provides clarity on what direction we should be moving toward. You know, so like in a sense, our goal for this year, I say R because I wrote the book, but I have a team who, you know, helps me run the business and market it and so on. But in a sense, like our goal was to sell as many copies of the book as possible and to write the best book possible. And we always knew that that was like the goal in a broad sense, but we never made any specific goals about this is the number of copies we want to sell, or this is the length of the book that we want it to be, or uh, this is how many reviews we want to have, things like that. Like we, we never made actual numbers there, but we knew that showing up and editing this week was really important or making sure we booked more interviews or uh, writing up the, the emails for when the book was going to be launching. Like all those things were on the task list still. And I think that in a way, what I'm describing here, what we just went through for the launch of the book is kind of similar to what I describe in the book. Uh, this idea of focusing on systems over goals, on process over outcomes, which is once you have some clarity about what's important to you, it's better probably to sort of set the goal on a shelf and just focus on the, the system and the process. And so um, talking about it now, I feel like we've embodied that in a, a decent way over the last year. Yeah, that's definitely something I want to do more of uh, over the coming year is move more towards systems. So where can people find you online, James, or your book? Yeah, well, thank you so much. It was uh, nice talking to you about all this. And um, so the book is called Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. And if you'd like to find out more about it, you can check atomichabits.com. And on that page, there are a variety of additional resources. There's a guide on how to apply the ideas to parenting, a guide on how to apply the ideas to business, a habit tracker template for tracking your own habits, and uh, a few other things. But anyway, all of that is at atomichabits.com. That's great. Thank you, James. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. If you did, please leave a rating on the iTunes store. And if you want to accomplish more with your writing, please visit becomearitertoday.com forward slash join and I'll send you a free email course. Thanks for listening.